0: When Dave Chappelle's recent show at First Avenue in Minneapolis was canceled amid protests, it reignited the debate around cancel culture, with all of the old arguments resurfacing once again. So the timing could not have been better for my guest on today's podcast, who published a comprehensive essay that same week on Substack titled Cancel Culture It's Real and On the Rise, on the Left and the right. The piece examines the dominant myths about this phenomenon and debunks them. Jeff Snyder is a professor of educational studies at Carleton College. Amna Khaled is a history professor there, as well as the host of the Banished podcast on Substack. I'm thrilled to have Amna Khalid and Jeff Snyder here to talk about cancel culture, today on Lean Out. Amna, Jeff, welcome to Lean Out. Thank you so much. It's great to be back on.
1: Thanks for having us.
0: It's so good to have you on. This piece is, um, is a very powerful piece, and I'm so glad that we'll get a chance to talk about it. It really goes in depth of what cancel culture is, why it's real, why it's on the rise, and how it operates on both the left and the right. The timing could not be better. We saw a number of cancel culture issues this week in the news. To start, for listeners who may be new to your work, Jeff, could you um, tell us how you and Amna came together and started working on this project?
1: Yeah, Amna and I started uh, collaborating from maybe five or six years ago at this point when we started to notice a change in some of the campus dynamics, uh, both at our own campus, Carlton College in Northfield, Minnesota, and at other colleges across the, the country, um, there was just a change in the tone of the or the tenor of the campus climate with uh, issues that hadn't been particularly controversial becoming almost too hot to handle. Um, and so uh, Amna and I kind of found each other through, through that. And uh, in, in particular, at the time, there was a move to create these initiatives on campus called bias response teams. And Amna and I got together and started talking about these initiatives and how we found them particularly concerning
0: now moving on to talk about cancel culture specifically. Amna, what is your shorthand definition of cancel culture? My definition of
2: cancel culture, you know, the simplest definition I can come up with is when there is a demand by a set of people for something or an idea to be completely silenced. And it often has repercussions for an individual, an organization, whatever the case may be, where they are either fired or they go out of business. So that is what I would call cancel culture. It's also a broader culture where this is acceptable and where this becomes the norm. So what we see is a rapid increase in censoriousness and people's comfort with censorship seems to be increasing.
1: If I could just briefly add on to what what Amna said um, in terms of what constitutes cancel culture, I I would note that, of course, we need to pay attention to outcomes, right? Do people lose their jobs? Is a book not published? Um, But... We also need to think about the attempt itself. And I think Amna and I are trying to um, encourage people to think about the crux of cancel culture as being the attempt to cancel an individual uh, work of art, um, a particular political idea. Because um, in law, there's a concept called the process is the punishment, which talks about even if you come out okay, on the other end, you know if you're subjected to a multiple months long investigation, for whatever reason, uh, the actual investigation itself is stressful and has these, you know, chilling effects that reverberate out from that individual case.
0: Mm. Uh, but
1: a lot of people will get hung up on the fact that, well, Dave Chappelle—he's not canceled; he's a millionaire. He's got a show every other night. Um, so it's the it's the attempt to cancel that—that um, that ultimately is the heart of of of, of cancel culture
0: this conversation around cancel culture in the mainstream is incredibly polarized. And one of the great contributions at this piece is it goes through all of the myths that are most common and debunks them. So I want to start with those trafficked uh, by the left. Jeff, what do you say to those who claim that cancel culture is just not real, that it's a ginned up moral panic, and that those who claim to be canceled as you mentioned, Dave Chappelle, often wind up being more successful, not less?
1: Yeah, well, to me, Dave Chappelle represents what Amna and I call the the survival bias um, that's intrinsic to the conversation about these high profile um, stars, right? People who are already rich and famous, who have large platforms, uh, you know, Louis CK, Dave Chappelle, um, people in that league are effectively uncancelable um, and uh, critics, especially on the left, will point to them and say, hey, well, you know, Louis C.K. is still doing gigs. He's still a multimillionaire. He didn't truly get canceled. Um, but I think it's precisely by focusing on those high-profile big stars that we lose sight of the real impacts among less high-profile individuals. Um, and so our, our piece is filled with many examples of those individuals who don't have the fame, who don't have the platform, who can't withstand um. Uh, a kind of an attack or cancellation campaign in the same way that, that these high profile stars do. So I think it's ultimately, um, to my mind, it's sort of like if you interview Beyonce, right? And you say, hey, what's your advice? And she says something like, well, never give up, follow your dreams, right? And there's 10,000 Beyonce's who are still living in their parents' basements who don't have the platform, right, and you don't hear from them. So you ultimately don't hear from many of these people who have been, you know, canceled in some way, uh, be- because they can't even talk about it. It's just completely under the radar. So for every Chappelle, you know, there are dozens, hundreds, I'm not sure, but many people uh, who have felt the repercussions of cancel culture much more acutely.
0: There are also those that argue that cancel culture is about accountability. Um, now when you've listened to that, when you hear that argument. And really the, the claim that an easy way to avoid negative attention online is just to stop saying heinous things. What's your response to that?
2: Well, I mean, I think if you look at what these cancellation attempts are about, and this is where I think some of the kind of empirical examples we gave in the piece are really helpful, you realize that this is not about like absolutely morally reprehensible things that we're talking about. In many instances, the examples are of things that people just don't like and that is the reigning ideology of right now. It doesn't jive with that and therefore it must be cancelled. What that doesn't take into account is that tomorrow it's going to shift and tomorrow another kind of view is going to be cancelled according to the ideology of that time, reigning ideology will be considered beyond the pale. So I think the important thing is that this is not accountability where we're talking about harassment or something that we would consider legally a crime but this is about really people saying things and express expressing ideas which are heterodox and those are the things that people are attacking and wanting for to be cancelled
1: mm. and, and, and heterodox within specific communities i think one of the things that frustrates both of us is um having these conversations in purely abstract terms right so a heterodox view on a liberal arts college campus might be i'm um, opposed to affirmative action but that's not a heterodox position um, among the American public at large, right? Every single ethno-racial group, if you poll adult uh, Americans, is broadly opposed to the use of affirmative action in hiring and, say, college admissions. So you, you need to look at how a view lines up with a particular local community. Um, the other thing that I would add on to what to what Amna said, you know, there's accountability but then there's the question of, you know, how much accountability? So I think one of the things that we've observed, um, everybody who's paid attention to cancel culture has observed, is that, you know, the, the punishment often doesn't fit whatever the you know, crime is, right? So we give the example of a, of a young woman named Alexi Mc, Mc, McMahon, I think is her, is her last name, um, young African-American journalist. Uh, when she was a teenager, she tweeted out some things that were clearly homophobic, that were clearly anti-Asian. There's no question about it. They're deeply offensive to me. I'm sure they're very offensive to, to many people. Uh, she apologized shortly thereafter. She went on to start to build a career. She was offered the, um, you know, to be the head editor of Teen Vogue some years later. The tweets came back to light. Um, she tried to talk through it again, uh, but but it went nowhere. There was too much pressure from uh, Teen Vogue staff themselves, as well as, you know, the Twitterati or whatever you want to call them, uh, who were calling for, for her head. And so in that case, it's, yeah, here's somebody who tweeted out something that was hateful, that was discriminatory, that was bigoted. Uh, but does that mean that for the rest of her life? Something that she did as a teenager should define and limit her career possibilities. To to my mind, that's not uh, proportional. It's disproportionate. And so I think that's one of the fundamental problems here.
2: And I think this this allows us to kind of talk about another aspect of cancel culture, which Loretta Ross has identified as unforgivability and unforgettability, right? I mean, which one of us hasn't had problematic views at some point in our lives? And if we haven't, then there's a problem. Um, And we should have the freedom to revise those views. That's called growth. It's called learning. And one of the problems with the current atmosphere is that there's no room to even allow for people's past mistakes, let alone mis- let alone mistakes that they may make now. So those come to haunt them, and that I think is a key feature. This kind of you know it's a trial by fire. If if you've ever done anything that will uh, run afoul of the reigning wisdom of whichever group is calling the shots, then you're in trouble.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, th- this dynamic at its most egregious and most comical, in my view, it happens when uh, students who have been admitted to a particular college, something comes out, a tweet or a comment on some sort of social media from when they were 14, 15, uh, that you know, is offensive or allegedly offensive, uh, and they actually have their admission office offer rescinded. Because to me, that's basically saying, hey, we as College X, as an institution, don't actually believe in our own mission. <laughs> right, The whole idea of a four-year college is that you come largely unformed, and through those four years, you learn and grow and develop. So, so to me, it's, um, it's absolutely reprehensible that institutions of higher education right, are saying, no, 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 we are not going to give you the opportunity to educate yourself. Uh, we're just rescinding your offered admission. And, if, you know, of course, depends on the individual case in question and the context. There may be cases when that is is worth doing. But from what I've seen so far, it's often cases that are yeah, truly, you know, things that are offensive, but that are juvenile. Um, and that somebody did when their, you know, frontal cortex was, was only half
0: baked. <laughs> I mean, that's the other side of it too, isn't it? People's brains aren't even like fully formed at that age. I mean, it's, it's really something. Um, let's spend some time on the right now, because um, you've you've really been careful in this piece to really look at both sides of this issue on the left and on the right. So Amna, what do you make of the argument that the NTCRT laws that we've seen are justifiable in that they're saving uh, children from political indoctrination and that political indoctrination in fact has no place in the classroom?
2: Look. I'm not going to argue for political indoctrination. I concur. Political indoctrination has no space in the classroom. And I'm also not going to say that there aren't some problematic practices that may be at play in classrooms. I will contend, though, that I don't think they're as pervasive as the right portrays them to be. Having said that, I think you know there are some practices or some ways of teaching that need to be challenged. And the way to challenge them in a democracy is for you to go stand for the school board, go and protest over there, go and speak, but the parents need to get involved. But laws and banning things is not the way to go. So this kind of way of approaching a problem where you think that you can ban your way out of it is actually creating an atmosphere where other people will then begin to say that, okay, you know, tomorrow we want to ban something else out of uh, existence. So I would say that this entire, Hullabaloo around CRT being taught, you know plenty has been written about it and about what constitutes CRT and all of that i'm not going to go into it. But what I do think is a problem is when you think that this can be legislated away and you know what do we know tomorrow, you know who someone else is going to try and legislate away the teaching of. um, I don't know patriotism would that be okay because someone comes and says america is a melting pot and we can't possibly talk about patriotism in a a way that um, is more conducive to how the right likes to think about american identity so i would say no this is outright censorship and i also want to say that we we're not equating the kinds of attempts from the left with those of the right. I think they're qualitatively different. Often, you know, what you hear is, oh, well, you know, the right is doing this. Well, but look at the left. The left is doing this. Or so the left will say, you know, when you point out what they're doing, they're like, oh, but the right is worse. Yes, of course, they're different. They're qualitatively different. I think state legislation has far more teeth and it has very um Powerful consequences, um, but at the same time, I don't think that should become a justification for the same kind of tactics being used on the other side. So um, it it does promote uh, a culture of censorship.
1: Also, just really quickly, want to add on to you know the idea that there is political indoctrination happening in K twelve schools. As as Amna said, I mean that does happen. Uh, I think it's relatively rare. Uh, In the egregious cases, I think what's more important in terms of the anti-CRT laws is that the charge of political indoctrination is being used as a smokescreen to obscure uh, what's often uh, the root concern, uh, which is that there are many Americans, alas, in 2022, um, who are still resistant to discussing um, the real history of the United States including the history of, of racism uh, that has characterized so much of, of our history. So I, I just want to, to, to make that distinction because I, I do think you used the word ginned up earlier. I think there is a lot of ginned up panic about critical race theory when basically what it is, is hey, here's the best, most accurate account that we have of US history thus far. Um, and there have been a lot of nightmarish, horrific aspects of it, and we shouldn't be afraid to look at those.
0: What about, uh, you know, the complaint that I hear a lot now, uh, which you also reference in the piece, is about protecting school children from age-inappropriate books, um, in this case, sexually explicit kids' books. Um, there are parents and there are people on the right who say this would be better left out of elementary school libraries and that this is not censorship because it's about age-appropriate literature. What What, what do you both make of that?
2: I'll come in here. Okay. I, I'm not saying that explicit books should be in elementary school classrooms or libraries. I think there is something to be said for age appropriate um, books and textbooks. And this is where the librarians come in, you know, they're trained to do this stuff. This is where your school teachers come in. They're the ones who have the authority to decide what is age appropriate or not. And again, if you want to contest it, the way to contest it is not to come up with legislation, right? Is you go and have a conversation, you go and get on the school board. but. But this idea that, um, especially at high school level, some of these books that they're kind of uh, contesting and saying this shouldn't be there and our our children are being, I mean, do you know what your children are watching online? It's probably far worse than the kinds of books that are out there. And these books are actually talking about the complexity of a particular kind of identity and navigating the world with that identity. So my my point is that at high school, it makes no sense to me. Um, I think if it's, yeah, if genderqueer is like in. An elementary school, maybe not the best choice, maybe something that you can revise but to to stipulate that this is something that high school students can't have or can't handle is wrong. The second thing I would say is the assumption is that children read something right oh they're going to read something about. um, homosexual affairs and they're going to become homosexual and the anxiety around that this is not how the human brain works and you don't just suddenly read something you're not a sponge in the way that you will suddenly start becoming that thing people have layered and very complex responses to stimuli and they may respond in a very different way they may approach it or process it in a different way we all know this and this idea that we, our children are going to be hurt is pro- promoting a fragility of our young adults at least that I'm not in favor of. And on top of that, it's highly infantilizing to our young adults. I, I'm delighted when I hear about young adults holding these banned books, um, clubs and things where they're taking it in their own hands. And they're like, no, we don't wanna be told what we can or can't read. Uh, we're big enough, we're old enough to process this ourselves. And I, I agree with that. Jeff?
1: Yeah, I agree with everything that, that Amna said. I mean, I think that... Um that I, somebody, I can't remember who it was, suggested that you know age-appropriate is such a fungible definition. Uh, what's appropriate for, for one parent may be inappropriate for another, um, and suggested using the term age-relevant. And I would argue that um, uh, the overwhelming majority of public school teachers in the United States are very attuned to what is age-relevant for their students. Um, at the schools where my boys go, who are um, 8 and 12, uh, they're not going to teach *Mouse*, uh, Art Spiegelman's absolutely brilliant um, and disturbing graphic novel about the Holocaust. Uh, they're not going to teach that in second grade. Uh, are they going to teach it in eighth grade? I think they do. Um, and, and I think there's a justification for that. So um, uh, one has to be... Um, uh, What's the right word? Mindful of these issues, but that's part of why teachers are professionals. Um, it's their job to figure out what is the right match of content um, that will meet my students and push them a little bit. Uh, I do think, you know, it's interesting because if you strip out all of the age inappropriate material from literature and history, what you're left with is Disney World. You're left with a fairy tale, an absolute fantasy. Um, and it's a fantasy that holds no attraction or allure for anybody who's a critical thinker or who has a heart, because you strip out all of the drama, the conflict, the violence, the trauma, the pain. Um, I don't want, again, I don't want my nine-year-old for every single class session during the day to be kind of a relentless march through the horrors of history and you know human depravity. Uh, but hey, it's, it's school. Um, uh, real literature, real history includes tough stuff and it should be introduced. Not all at once, not a shock and awe campaign, but absolutely gradually, strategically. Um, I, I think if we don't do that, we do our kids uh, a disservice. To me, this is like, you know, the old school parenting uh, advice, you know, grandma, grandma dies and you say to your kid who's eight or nine, you know, grandma's asleep. Uh, and then when they're, you know, uh, well, probably they don't believe it to begin with, but it's like, you know, Grandma, grandma died. Let's talk that through. This is the reality. You're not going to see her again. Let's not dwell in a fantasy land. I
2: want to, I want us to think a little bit and look at which are the books that, what are the kind of through lines are between the books that are being considered age inappropriate? They have to do with characters that are of color. They have to do with sexuality. You know, they're a very particular kind of book that is being canceled. Now I could say, as um, I was talking to Ashley Hope Perez, whose book Out of Darkness was um, banned, and, and she made this point, you know, well, will we ban the Bible? Because there's a lot of stuff in the Bible that is technically age inappropriate if we use the same standards. There are stories in the Bible that I don't think a child should be exposed to. Do you take it out of the library? And that litmus test is actually a good one. It really shows you that there is, it is a smokescreen, that there is something else going on here.
0: I'm wondering, too, before we close, if I can get you to weigh in on two things that were making the news last week as your piece was circulating, the first of which is uh, the cancellation of Dave Chappelle's show at First Avenue in Minneapolis after protests uh, over his alleged transphobia. How are you both thinking through that?
2: First Avenue can do whatever the hell it wants to do because it's a private entity. In terms of the legality of it, I think, you know, that's their prerogative. I think people can protest and institutions can decide what they want to do. However, what does that, I'm more interested in the repercussions of a decision like that, right? What it says is that certain kind of comedy will not have a room at First Avenue. And then it does produce this larger chilling effect. They're perfectly within the purview of their rights to do that. However, I do think that it it gives into this idea of what will and will not be tolerated. And the the margins are becoming narrower and narrower.
1: Yeah, and I mean, just to add on to what Amna said, I mean, again, like Dave Chappelle is untouchable. Um, It it really doesn't matter if he has the First Avenue show uh, canceled as far as I'm concerned. I do think that the repercussions in terms of uh, younger comics, the comics who are just coming up through the ranks, to look around and say, okay, I guess I can't get a First Avenue gig if I talk about X. Um, and you know, Dave Chappelle's um, comments are, you know, it's, it's, it's debatable. I think there's some merit to thinking about are are these really harmful comments that he's that he's making. Um, but you know, that's the heart of, of of comedy. Chappelle earlier pushed the boundaries, right? In 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 a way that I can imagine. You go back 10, 15 years ago, and there would be people uh, primarily conservatives who would be calling for Chappelle, the Chappelle show to be censored and to be canceled and tossed off of television.
0: And what about, I mean, we saw, uh, this last week as well, a column from Pamela Paul, the New York times about behind the scenes censorship and self-censorship within the book publishing industry, which she calls, uh, a softer form of banishment. I thought this was a pretty solid piece. Um, obviously in a very influential newspaper, is this a sign? Do you feel like the tide is starting to turn?
2: I mean, I thought the piece was fantastic. I really loved it because it brought to light exactly the kinds of chilling effects that we're talking about. And it brought to light how they're happening within the publishing industry. So even before something can be, you know, put uh, like the ink can be put on paper, even prior to that, there is a way in which writers are being inhibited in terms of what they can produce or what would even be be entertained. So I, I think the piece was fantastic. I think it was extremely noteworthy that she said that very few people were even willing to talk to her in the publishing industry and the one who actually said this said it under the condition of anonymity now that to me is not a moment when the tide is turning i think we're distinctly um in the heart in the thick of uh, censorious times so no i am not feeling hopeful uh, that article if anything makes me feel more you know worries me more than than before but I think okay. it's fantastic. I would just,
1: just draw a connection to the world of, of, of higher education, right? When you see this same self-censorship dynamic in play. So I'm, I'm one prof at one institution. You know, I have friends and colleagues at, at other institutions across the country. But I can think of dozens of examples. Me as an individual, I can think of dozens of examples of faculty members I know who have stopped teaching certain texts who have stopped showing certain films, who have stopped um, uh, doing particular assignments because they've received uh, complaints from students. And this isn't to say that students shouldn't or can't complain or come and talk to you about your assignments and your readings. But uh, when, you, when you talk to them, uh, they say, hey, you know, this actually used to be my favorite book to teach or favorite film to show, but it's just not, it's not worth the hassle anymore. Um, right, and so you know, none of this ever makes the headlines. These are just behind closed doors conversations between friends and colleagues. I don't think people understand really the scale or scope of this issue, um, and, and that's why I really appreciated that Time's piece because it gives you a window into what's happening behind closed doors that people are genuinely afraid to voice um, to voice opinions. And as the as the author herself noted. Um, these aren't off-the-wall conspiracies. These aren't alt-right views. Um, these are not bigoted views. These are often liberal views, center-left views, um, that, that people are afraid to voice and air uh, or that people are afraid to challenge a kind of imagined liberal or progressive consensus around a particular topic. So yeah, I thought that article was, was terrific. I guess I'm slightly more optimistic than Amna, and that I do think that if the, you know, quote-unquote mainstream media places like the New York Times um, uh, pay a little more attention to these issues and take them seriously, that to me is a is a victory. It's a very very small victory, uh, but um, and and it's a victory that kind of runs against this this broader trend and tide of of sensorial culture
0: uh well we will continue talking about this going forward it's so great to have you both on thank you so much for your work in this area which i think is such important work thank you tara this was wonderful
1: yeah thanks so much for having us we really appreciate
0: it Lean Out is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com.